If you have your own Bible, make sure you have it. If you don't have your own Bible, and you haven't figured out that there's some missing hymnals in the pew, there's still hymnals, but there's some missing hymnals, there's some Bibles in the pew right in front of you. Should be two in each set. I want you to grab it this morning. And get your own soon, but by all means, expect those to stay there in the pew so we can do a little little digging. So you can get used to finding some of these places in the Bible that I want you to make a home in. Find your heart there. You know, Come and go and return to these words as your, well, what Solomon calls your good goads. A goad is a spike. And I think they can be used for building houses or railroads. Think of that kind of spike. But in the ancient world, they would stick it on a stick. And then they'd use it to hit the ox while they're at the plow. Because that ox, he doesn't want to move. And you got to hit him with that spiky stick over and over again. It's a good go to get the, the crops put in the ground. Solomon says that's what good words from the Bible are, that they're good goads. You can spur yourself forward with them. You can fight your flesh with them. And I want you to find some. I want you to return to them. Again, the peppering of Psalm 23, Psalm 1, and a life in the Proverbs with those verses that most inspire you this year from wherever you find them. Isaiah is going to give us a lot of diversity. There's a lot of different things he talks about. Uh, but we're going to start this morning by looking at Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read it to you more than anything. This is Isaiah's call. It's going to set up the story I'm going to tell about his life because the first line says, in the year King Uzziah died. Who's that? Well, we'll find out. But just, just listen here for a moment or read along if you got in front of you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, that's, that's Jesus, without his incarnate body, but the Son of God. I saw the Son of God sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth whole is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Jesus Christ of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say this to my people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now, whew, that's just a piece, this thing. What a story we're in for here. Let's see how much I can tie together today. There's, there's a lot. It's, it's too big to fit in, even the, the 40 minutes or so we're going to try to take. Um, but let's just let's, let's rewind here just to Uzziah for a second, right? Before we get into burning stumps and things. Um, the year that King Uzziah died, things are going really well if you're an average Jew. And by Jew, I mean a descendant of Judah living in uh, Judah. It's not even called Judea yet. Living in the kingdom of Judah. This is the south of old Israel. And hopefully you've been here long enough to know, right, that you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that split after Solomon's son is a nincompoop about it. We'll call them the north, the south. You can call them Israel and Judah. You can also call the north Ephraim because they tended to follow Ephraim. And this will be important a little bit later in, in today's story, actually. Uh, but Judah, at the time King Huzziah dies, is at the third highest peak of its entire history. One of those being Solomon's reign over the whole thing. So you have, in the history of the kings of Judah... Solomon, who just is the glorious one, he's the, the image of Christ in his kingdom. And then you have some like slippages and rises and slippages and rises. And there's a bunch of these that go on. And some of them come with world power and some of them don't. So, for example, Josiah, hopefully you know his name. He found the scroll of the law in the bottom of the temple. He's like, oh my goodness, we've got to do this stuff. Now, he didn't exactly reign from sea to shining sea, though. He just reformed the temple. But Uzziah... Short of one other name who you know nothing about, but you know his name, Jehoshaphat. Je so, uh, Uzziah is the third most powerful king that will ever rule over Judah. Egypt is not conquered by him, but speaks of him as the greater one. That's very rare in their history. So if you're an average person in the land, this is like the best. This is the best. This is good. This is good times. Market's going up, can buy what I want, got to go to all the vacations. When Passover comes around, plenty of money for presents. No problem. Right? Life is great. But the message that Isaiah is given to speak into this kingdom that Uzziah is reigning over is that nobody's listening anymore. Nobody's listening anymore. And that the result of this not listening will be the absolute destruction of the civilization they've come to love. All of their houses will be desolate. We're going to look at Isaiah 5 here in a moment and this, this foretelling of the destruction of, of Judah. It will not happen for a long time. Isaiah is sent merely to preach to them repentance until they don't anymore. And we're going to see that his preaching is not without all value because you do have King Hezekiah come about as a result of this. And we'll get to his story. But that's a little bit after Uzziah. So let's, let's stick with Uzziah. And let's, let's rewind on him a bit because... Third greatest king in all of Judah. I mean, really, he has quite a story. His grandfather is, I got to get these right, Joram, king of Judah, whose grandmother is Athaliah. Do you remember that one from last year? What a tale. Athaliah, she's the daughter of Jezebel, who marries Jehoshaphat. He's good in almost every way, but this one marries Jehoshaphat's son, Joram. And by the time she is done, she's queen, Joram's dead, her son is dead, and all her grandsons are dead, except one. Um, and his name 
I'm losing now. Unless that one's Joram. I may have flipped the two. It does get tough. That one child who survives, he is, again, the grandfather of Uzziah. He's brought up as a child in the house of the great high priest who preserved his life from Athaliah's reign of terror and uh, will be brought into a tremendous reign, a faithful reign where many good things are restored. But after that high priest's death, he starts listening to different counselors who tell him to do different things. And by the end of it, he has murdered a man named Zechariah, who's effectively his adopted brother. He's the son of that same high priest. They grew up together. He allows for his murder so that he can continue pleasing the evil men in his kingdom. All right, so that's Uzziah's grandfather. His son is named Amaziah, and him we know almost nothing about, except his name causes confusion all over the place. But he reigns very shortly. He reigns for seven years. So we go from this guy... Um, who has rehabilitated the kingdom under high priest, brought it all the way to the pinnacle. In one pinnacle, he, I mean, the high priest dies. He gives up on the whole thing. And a generation later, um, this guy Azariah then takes the, the power that he sees in the kingdom and he throws it into a war. And that war is to the north against Israel. He just upright attacks the north and attempts to take it back without a word from God to do this. He's crushed. The people are crushed. They are utterly demolished. He dies. Uh, actually, he's killed by the people after the war, not in the war. He comes home. They kill him, and they put his son on the throne, and his son is Uzziah. All right. Isaiah, Uzziah is 16 at this point. He's going to reign like 70 years, part of it on his own, and part of it through his son, Jotham. Now, Uzziah immediately is faithful. He's faithful. And we're told that he was taught by another guy named Zechariah, not the same one I was just talking about and not the one who wrote the book later. But there's another priest named Zechariah who leads Uzziah to be very wise. He studies Torah. He studies David and Solomon. And he ends up being, again, he rises to the greatest power Judah has ever had. Uh, he is able to then marshal military strength and go out. And he does. He conquers Philistia. That's the whole coast whole coast. He conquers Ammon, uh, this ancient enemy who had rebelled and gotten away. Uh, he conquers a bunch of Arabia to the east. And again, I mentioned before, he's revered by Egypt. Egypt actually sends him tribute. Uh, uh, he builds a very important city too on the seacoast. So he begins Israelite trade through a seaport. That's very rare in their history, but he does this. That will actually be taken eventually in a battle that comes up in this same story. And my, my favorite part about all of this is that he did something nobody believes he did. He just, he just, if you're a modern person and you believe what the modern historians tell you, then this is just not possible. He fortified Jerusalem. Now, that's possible. You know, you build the towers higher, you build the walls deeper. Now, ancient Nineveh had these huge walls, like miles across or whatever. Uh, he doesn't do that. He just builds a big tower. But what he puts on the tower are structural weapons that can fling a giant long arrow, giant beam, a giant, uh, uh, I'm losing the real word for it, you guys know it, harpoon effectively, um, can fling one of these down at troops, a, you know, a pre-modern cannon. And he puts several of them on his towers around Jerusalem. He's marvel. Everyone's like, what is that? Uh, he is so capable because of the wisdom God gives him. And I would say this is because of the wisdom God gives him. 
Because we find that he then does something that doesn't work out very well. He is so convinced he can see all things that he decides he has understood something no one else before him has ever thought of. And that is that the king is actually the, the, the power where the priesthood comes from. That might seem trite to you, but for a Hebrew, it made a big deal. Now you have the king and you got the priest and never shall the two do the same thing. But he decides, oh, yeah, no, no, the priest is authorized by the king. So I can go in and do priestly things. And he marches right into the temple to do this. This is, you know, he's been on the throne for 30 years. He marches right into the temple up to this place called the altar of incense. It's not the main altar, it's near the front, but it's a place where prayers are offered. And he's going to offer incense there. And he's confronted by the high priest and 80 other priests. And they say to him, here's the quote, this does not belong to thee. And at the moment of his resistance to that statement, because he was going to do it anyway, leprosy broke out upon him. Leprosy, uh, boils and disgusting skin cancer coming out of him in that very moment. Now, and it says it in, in Chronicles, you know, leprosy broke out in the house of Christ at the altar of incense. Now, that means it's not any good as a temple anymore for a while. Nobody can get any sins forgiven and we're in danger. That's, that's what that means. Yeah? Now, I think this is a good sign. It says of uh, uh, Uzziah, he himself hasted to go out. So as soon as this happens, this is my understanding, he knows what's happened. He knows he went too far. He knows who he betrayed. He knows he is spoiling the house of God. He says, no more of that. He runs. I'm getting my unclean out. He reigns like another 30 years as a leper from a secret place in the house through his son, Jotham, who builds the temple gate, erects castles in the desert, and uh, is buried with the kings because it says he did not burn incense in the temple of the Lord. Um, the sad thing about Uzziah is he will not be buried in the tomb of the kings then. His leprosy prevents that. And he's kept outside the city, but near to the tomb of the kings in the field, in the understanding that he is a repentant and believing king who made one really bad decision so that we might learn a lesson from it. Yeah. It is during all of that again, remember, that everyone's drifting further and further from trusting that Jesus is doing any of it. So that by the time that Jotham dies and his son Ahaz takes the throne, things are, are looking worse already. Uh, Judah and its power is already beginning to fade as there's an alliance to the north between Ephraim, right, the northern kingdom, and another power that is a regional and historic power that's on the rise called Syria, usually. Although connecting these ancient powers to their capital city is really helpful because they're kind of the same thing. They're like city states. Yeah. Uh, and so Syria is Damascus. It's Damascus. Assyria is Nineveh. They're very different places, right? Um, we're going to talk about Assyria. But first, Syria, Damascus or their even older name, Aram, from which you get the Arameans. Maybe that strikes a bell. Uh, Aram forms an alliance with the north, and together they go against Judah. These kings' names, just for fun, are Pekah, king of the north, and Rezin, king of Damascus. And they go to war against Ahaz. He's kind of young, in his 20s. He's got his counselors to talk to. Uh, they lose that town that was built by Uzziah, Uzziah on the coast, Elath, that town is taken uh, by Rezin, king of Damascus. And in another battle, uh, Pekah, 
the again ruler of the north, it is said that they slaughter 120,000 Judeans or, or Jews, right? So the north kills 120,000 men of that 300,000 man army. And then they take 200,000 captives, women and children, back to the north as slaves. Now, amazing little side story. They get met on the road by a guy named Obed. Obed's a prophet. Obed says, hey, y'all, that's really evil what you're doing. And like four major leaders are like, yeah, it really is. We're sorry. And they like, let everybody go. And they send them all home with like food. It's an amazing moment of repentance and belief and truth. And I mean, what he says, these are your brothers. Why are you doing this to your brothers? And they really like, you're right. Why are we? It's an amazing moment. That's Obed. Oh, dead. Excuse me. But meanwhile, again, Ahaz is like, I'm getting attacked from here. I'm getting attacked from here. What shall I do? The prophet Isaiah shows up. He says, trust in Jesus. Ask for a sign. I won't ask for a sign. He'll give you a sign anyway. Emmanuel. You've heard that before, right? Uh, that's all in the Ahaz story. But Ahaz, by the time he's getting this sign, has also come up with his own good idea. And his idea is this. Um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if I'm getting attacked by this guy and this guy going this way, who's over there that might hit them from that side? Oh, that's Nineveh. That's Assyria. Dear king of Assyria, you're my best friend. Did you know we're brothers? I've always been your servant. Here's half the money from my God's temple. Please help me out. Amen. Goodbye. He sent it off. He sent it off. Isaiah confronts them and he says that they will not, this will not save you. What you've done instead, Ahaz, is you've invited him to come get you too. And that's what he's going to do eventually. Now, Ahaz will not live to see this. Not entirely. Uh, his life goes a little quietly by at the end. There's a bunch of other stuff. I mean, he's tearing down things out of the temple and replacing it with pagan statuary. He's desecrating everything he can find. Um, he's not as bad as his grandson Manasseh will be, but he's, he's almost there. All right. So in the meantime, this Syrio-Ephraimitish war against Judah does get stopped by Assyria because Assyria does attack these other two kingdoms. And Israel, whoosh, never seen again. There's a remnant left in the land. And Damascus absorbed new dynasty, same power, now part of Assyria's power. And hey, look, Egypt. Hmm. And if you look at the ancient world, it is a swing between the Fertile Crescent, Assyria, Nineveh, and Egypt. The whole ancient world is a power shift between those places as they try to fight each other. And Israel has so much trouble because they're trapped between all of them. They're stuck in the middle of all those wars. So in any case, they turn their attention down to Egypt. And, you know, Ahaz has sent some more money up, up, but he dies and Hezekiah, his son, takes the throne. And while Tiglath-Pileser is waging this battle against Egypt, he decides to start taking Judea countryside. A little more, a little more, here and there, here and there. Hezekiah is in Jerusalem listening to Isaiah. He's cutting down the bad altar. He's replacing stuff. He's getting everything as clean as he can. They're going to have a new Passover as fast as they can. It'll be a little bit late, but it'll get stuff up and running again because it's been a while since anything's even working. Uh, Isaiah's like, God will protect you, but like, you got to fix this. So that's what he's doing. He's losing land. He's losing land. His army's not even out there fighting. Eventually, he's still, they're doing this project in the temple, and a good section of the army of Assyria, not all of it, because a lot of it's down in Egypt, but, you know, tiglath Pileser is somewhere up between there and Egypt, waging the battle like a general would. He sends a huge contingent out to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is entirely surrounded by this army. They have absolutely no way 
of defeating or fighting this army. All that has to happen is the army just has to wait. They're all going to starve to death. And that's what the ambassador of Assyria starts saying to them in Hebrew. Hey, y'all, just so you know, Hezekiah is going to get y'all killed. You're going to eat each other. Why don't you throw him out? We'll see if we make a deal after that. And, and Hezekiah's guardsmen, I laugh. It's so sad and scary. They, they're beside themselves. They're like, hey, man, can you talk to us in a different language? Like, not that the people hear it. And the guy's like, do you not understand why I'm here? Do you not understand the power that I have? Come down now and give up. Because even your God can't stop us. And it's when this guy, Rabshakeh, says that, that I, I, I tingle. When he puts his foot in his mouth and says, you know, I'm here because your God's not big enough. That's when you know he's done. That's when you know he's done. Inside, what's happening? Inside, Hezekiah is going back to Isaiah. What are you telling me to do? This is not working. Please help. Go to the temple. Pray one more time. You can read about that in chapters 37, 38, 39. I really recommend you go do, read Hezekiah's prayer this week. He goes and he prays. He begs Jesus, please. Jesus is like, yep, all right. That night, that night, the angel of Yahweh, that's Jesus himself, and all the heavenly hosts, these are these fiery warriors, they descend upon the Assyrian camp and they wipe out every man in it. Now, this isn't all the army down in Egypt. This is just the army surrounding Jerusalem. Do you remember that other story about Elijah I'm going to get it wrong. Is it Elisha and his servant? And they look out a window and they see all the troops and then they see all the troops of fire. Same story, different perspective. Okay, same city. Uh, Jesus comes down. He wipes them out. It is alluded that Rabshakeh gets back to Tiglath-Pileser at his tent where he's waging war against Egypt. But as he gets there, news has come that there's treason back in Nineveh. So they go back to Nineveh to deal with the treason. And within a couple weeks, this guy has gotten home, gone into his temple to pray to his God, and his own sons have murdered him from behind. All because Rapshika said, Jesus can't save you. And all because Hezekiah said, Jesus, save us. Huh? What a powerful thing that is. Hezekiah proceeds to rebuild from there. I mean, can you imagine it? Like the next day, the gates of the city open. You got peeking out. Like all these tents and dead bodies, a lot of armor. There's some horses there. Let's get that stuff. Piece by piece, he retakes the whole countryside. Judah returns to a faithful life. And for a, a generation or so, worship at the temple is restored. And Judah has not the great power of the world, but quiet, peaceable prosperity. Many empty, wealthy houses, many very happy poor people just living their lives. Time passes, and eventually it's time for Hezekiah to die. He's done a good job. He's been a good king, but we all only get 80 to 120 max in this thing. Uh, he's not reached that 120 limit, so he's on his deathbed, and Isaiah comes to him and says, well, God's going to have you die now. We don't all get this. He actually gets, God is going to have you die now. Hezekiah, Jesus decided now's your time. And Hezekiah does something that every single one of us has to empathize with. We have to know we would do the exact same thing. And the reason I want you to know it is so you can see how it's not always the best idea. What does he do? He says, well, Jesus, will you please not kill me? Haven't I lived a good life? Haven't I been a good king? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done everything I ought to do? Will you please not kill me yet? Isaiah says, all right, you get 15 more years. And that seems great. 
You know, prayer works or something like that, right? The problem is, if he died then, his people would have had a much better time of it for a while. Probably. Now, I can't promise things because history is what history is. There's two things that happen, though, after he gets better, that both are the problem. First, he gets better, and suddenly there are some visitors. He doesn't know much about them. They're from this old world place far away called Babylon. They're curious. Well, who are you guys? You know, well, I'm this guy. Look at all my God is great. Look at all the things. He's, he shows all the wealth that he's got to these ambassadors from Babylon. Isaiah comes to him later. He's like, so just so you know, you just invited them to sack and pillage everything from you, and they're going to. And Hezekiah is not real happy about that, but he's, he's also like, during my lifetime? And uh, Isaiah says, no. And he's like, well, okay. Which, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's worth pondering. Like I'm saying, after he comes back from his sickbed, it's not like he's making great decisions or having things go the way he really wants. He thinks more life equals better life. More life equals invite my enemies and more life equals give birth to a son named Manessa who would not have been born if I had just died. Manessa will come to the throne. Manessa will be the worst king Judah ever has. Manessa will be the reason God says, I will never again forgive Judah for anything. Not like this. They're going to be destroyed. Manessa leads a reign of bloody terror in which he even murders Isaiah by sawing him in half. Do you really need to pray for that many more years? Or does letting God take you out actually sometimes make sense in ways you'll never see? But trusting in him is indeed not about asking for more, but seeing what you've already got. Yeah. So I think Hezekiah's second prayer is there to remind us that there's a big difference between praying for what God has commanded us to pray for and praying for what we want. And he will give us what we want, but not always so that we can feel great about it. <laughs> Sometimes so that we will learn to repent of it. So I think, let's see, do I need to say any more about uh, Hezekiah passing to Manasseh. I don't think so. I think I covered most of that. Um, most of the story, it looks like it. Yes, yes, yes. So what I want to do now is shift gears and try to put this into that context of Isaiah chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. And we're going to take a good slow look at these verses and try to pull them out, at least in their surface meaning, one by one. Isaiah 5, 1 to 21. And this is at the front of the book because it's a summary for the whole book. It doesn't get to the exciting lion laying down with the lamb stuff the end of the book will get to. But without this, the promises of resurrection, the promises of salvation don't make any sense. Before you're going to be saved, you have to be saved from something. And the Song of the Vineyard is going to say very much what humans need to be saved from, which is our own success our own wealth, the gifts God gives us that we turn into wicked things. And the call to hear that is what Isaiah preached. Now, does that mean that wherever Isaiah is preached, you won't be able to hear it? Remember how his call said, preach and they won't be able to hear? No, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. So Isaiah's call was to preach the truth into a civilization that would not repent, but would eventually collapse. But all along, on and on going, families and individuals are repenting and believing because that's where the real church is. It's not the power, it's the people, it's the believers, right? So let us believers today learn about what happens when the vineyard goes bad, Isaiah chapter five. Um, and I'm gonna be using the ESV 
here this morning, um, just because that's the one that's in the pew for those of you who don't have your own Bibles. Um, but please use your other translations as well. So Isaiah says in chapter 5, verse 1, Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. From there, you get the catchphrase, the song of the vineyard, or Isaiah's song of the vineyard. It's going to be this whole chapter, but there's kind of a parable at the start, and then a bunch of stuff he says about it. Think about, as you listen to this parable a second time here, uh, how many parables Jesus tells about tenants in fields, right? Uh, and even there's also the wicked tenants of the vineyard. Uh, Jesus picks up on this language. It's very much his story. Here's Isaiah's version of the metaphor, the parable. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. That's, it's a winery. You know, Jesus built a winery. And he thinks this winery is Old Testament Israel. He thinks this winery is the New Testament church. This winery is the hearts of stone cleared by his blood and implanted with the Holy Spirit to believe he's God against this world and in spite of this world. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. I used to work in the, the wine country of Northern California and I drive past these vineyards. I mean, there's amazing to look at, right? And he built a wall. It's got a tower. I mean, this is, this is five-star stuff. But it yields, and, and the English there says wild grapes. It really doesn't come across well. The reason the word wild is chosen is because that is the word in Hebrew that's used. But it's more of a pun in Hebrew than you can hear here because in the Hebrew it sounds like the same word um, for uh, yield grapes and wild grapes. There's, a, there's a, a rhyme there in the Hebrew basically. And you can't see that here, but you have to then understand the rhyme is there for art. And so the word wild means more than just kind of like crazy, right? It actually means what we would say sour, right? We talk about sour grapes. Everyone knows what that means. You kind of want to hear that in the phrase wild here. They're not good grapes. You can't make wine out of these. Ah, whole crop is lost. That kind of thing, right? So now he asks the question, verse three and four, you know, why don't you all who live here, who I've given all this power and wealth and money to, why don't you tell me why you're producing unbelief? And I'll just kind of jump to the cut for a second. This is why this is important for the United States in 2021. As a country obviously blessed of God with some form of temporal worldly power, the extent of our wealth is storied among us at least. So why then prayer removed from schools? Why then teaching children that they are descended from monkeys? Why then pornea on every computer? Why then liars whose consciences are seared stealing everything they can? I can go on and on. Why then the abortifacient industry? Why then Christians willing to care more about this life than the world to come? I can go on and on. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more did Jesus need to give to the Christian church in America to make us live for him and not for us? And for all of the vacations we've taken in the name of mission trips over the last 50 years, I have to tell you, we've lived for us. All of us. God says, you know, so what, what did you need? You had the word, you had the sacraments, you had the money. What did you need? I'm going to take away the money. See if that gets you back in track. Uh, what was more there for me to do in my vineyard? I will tell you then what I will do to my vineyard. Verse 5, let's take away the money, right? I'm going to remove the hedge. And it shall be devoured. So the power will be removed. Now, 
Am I saying that Isaiah is prophesying the collapse of the U.S.? Please, somebody say no. Say no. No, okay, good, good, because I'm not. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is that the pattern holds true throughout the history of the world. If you build on truth, you rise. If you build on lies, you collapse. It just, it just happens. And so Isaiah is saying, look, if you've got the truth and you're taking it out piece at a time from the structure, the structure is going to fall down. For Judah, that was Judah. For St. Paul Lutheran Church, that would be St. Paul Lutheran Church. Thank God we're not doing that. We're shoving the good goes in as much as we can. We're building the structure as much as we can. Is our country building a solid structure for foundational living and solid family life right now? No. Good. I'm glad you know that. <laughs> I'm never sure. You know, people don't. People don't. So what will happen when the hedge is removed? What happens when fathers don't protect their families? What happens when mayors don't protect their cities? Huh? It gets devoured. It gets devoured. And I will say this. I'm not a prophet, but I'm a student of history. If the U.S. does indeed have an economic collapse, that is, if the dollar stops working the way it used to on a global level, what will happen is not necessarily World War III or the Civil War repeated. What will happen is power will return to the cities. And the cities that thrive will do well, and the cities that don't thrive will collapse even further. And a lot of that will have to do with the rule of law and whether their police departments actually enforce real laws for good people in those cities. And where cities don't do that, bad people are going to keep doing stuff, and it's all going to fall apart. It will be devoured. So just because Isaiah prophesies that kingdoms that fall by lies get devoured doesn't mean everywhere in this great land of America that is going to be the same if we have economic collapse. But it does mean that if we have economic collapse, there's only one thing Christians should think. We should say we're sorry and realize we've been part of a people of unclean lips and gone way too far with them and we need our daily bread again. And we're really happy if we just get that. Because daily bread is way better than starvation, right? Somebody testify? Yeah, amen to that, right? So what happens to Jerusalem, though? They're told full destruction. So I'm not going to look at every verse here, but you know, breaking down the wall, making it waste. It's not pruned or hoed. Uh, Rod, you know, actually, I, I'm thinking about you and the farm. As, as I'm reading, you know, neither pruning or hoeing. The briars and thorns grew up. And I imagine the distress you would find if you walked out one morning and you found all your work turned into that, right? It would, it would, it would break you a little bit. Uh, and then no rain, no rain, right? So there's a famine. And then he tells us in verse seven, I've already said this, you know, this is really Israel and Judah that he's talking to, but we can see in them types of nations. We can see in them types of churches. We can see in them types of families. Everything the Bible says about anyone applies to everyone, ultimately, uh, in terms of fractal truth. Um, so here's the problem, right? He wants a pleasant planting, middle of verse seven. He wants the fruit of lips that confess the name of God as the giver of good things and praise to him every time. And in, in this, he looks for justice, but instead he gets bloodshed, for righteousness, but instead an outcry. Uh, so the poor are oppressed, and the weak have no one to turn to, and the wicked men just take more and more. And then you have these woes here. I was counting them. I hadn't done that yet. There's one, two, three, four, five woes listed here, and they all are a little distinct. The first one, I can't help but think about Bill Gates, though. Let me tell you. Yeah, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Uh, the, the main idea here is, uh, woe to those who get so rich they have more than one house when there's a lot of people who don't have any house. And then you make all those people live in small crappy houses, you charge them a lot of money, and their lives suck while you have a bunch of space you can't even use. Woe 
to you. And I mentioned the guy's name. You can go look it up. It's what he's doing. He's buying farmland so we can't raise cattle on it. It's a crazy, crazy thing. It's actually his plan. You know, he's got a lot of money to do it. Um, well, woe to him. Uh, you know, the, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, though, I mean, here's the woe to like a collapsing country. Uh, think, of, uh, think of Europe in World War II. And I'm, I'm going to back up as I say that. World War II didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of World War I. And that didn't come out of nowhere. All of that came out of the rejection of Christianity in the elite class over a couple hundred years through the Enlightenment. And then World War I, well, it kind of ended, but it ended with France putting a, a, a foot on Germany's throat so that Germany had, had to hate everything around them. And then continuing to buy into pre-war ideas about science and sexuality particularly to the level where in 1920s Germany, before Hitler comes to power, before these people are crazy enough to, to uh, you know, vote Hitler in, they're taking young boys and they're experimenting on their genitalia in order to remove them and see if they can make them more like girls. And if that doesn't sound familiar, America, I sure ought to. Oh, goodness. Surely many houses shall be made desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. If the Lord brings wrath on us, we deserve it. But in verse 10, 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. That's about the famine. So it's like, that would be, I would say like, you know, what? A, a pound of burger costs 25 bucks. You know, that's hard times, right? That's real hard times. So that's the first one. Second one was, woe to those, verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre, harp, tambourine, flutes. They do not regard the deeds of Jesus. So that is about, you know, the party culture. You got investment culture, you got party culture. You know, you get up, you work hard, why? So you can get drunk later, maybe meet a girl. That's why we go to college, you know. If you don't know, that's why kids go to college. That's why they go to college. That's what college is mostly about is that. Woe to them, it says, running after strong drink, inflamed by the wine. And then the, the threat again, verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Sheol has enlarged its appetite, verse 14, opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Uh, so Sheol is the word pit or grave. We would say grave. And when he says Sheol has opened its mouth beyond measure, the idea is more people are going to die at once than normally happens to Jerusalem. Right? Um, and while, again, in Hezekiah's time, remember how he prays and Jerusalem survives. Well, you go down another generation and a half, the same thing happens and nope, everything that's warned here happens. Now, they eat their babies in pots. And that's very sad. So, uh, Sheol, the grave, opening its mouth to eat more people at once is what I think a lot of people are afraid of right now. If I can be bold for a moment. And not, not really tell the story or the future, but I, let me suggest that, that in all of the various conspiracy theories running around out there, including the conspiracy theory that there's no such thing as conspiracy theories, I mean, think about it. Um, in all of that madness, in all of that crazy, the thing I think we're most afraid of is having a lot of people die really fast, right? 
That's what I'm most afraid of. Because I know that's what would cause the problem to the food structure. Like for me to eat every day, I need to have everybody still alive and driving everywhere. If that stops because everybody dies, things don't get where they're supposed to go. That's kind of my read on, oh, where, where am I living and what do I do about it right now? Right? That, that's my fear. But I think all of the, or the rest of us are like, what happens if there's a lot of death? What happens if it ends up like Australia? Do you know about Australia? You know, they're in full lockdown still. Government says you can't come out of your house at all. Not much different than here in terms of everything else, in terms of numbers. It's, it's a strange time to be alive. And again, my great fear is what happens if a lot of us die? Because it's happened before. And here it's because my people lack knowledge, it says. My people lack knowledge. What's the knowledge? The knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the creator, the knowledge of the goodness of mankind, the sanctity of human life, the knowledge of hope and truth, which even the Greek pagans knew, but we Americans don't. Uh, we, just know, we just know luxury and pleasure and destruction that comes with it. So Shaol looks like it's opening his appetite. What do you do? What do I do? Pray. Let's read the Psalms. Let's pray the Proverbs. Let's believe that, in fact, God builds arcs, too. Don't assume that just because it happened there, it'll happen here. It's here for you to, to, to repent today for your life, for your place, play for your city, get involved with your proximity, and trust Jesus is strong enough to save you here. Be Hezekiah here in your life. Yeah? That's why I'm preaching this. Because imagine, imagine, you think Hezekiah was alone praying that day? He wasn't alone in that city praying that day. There were all sorts of, they didn't throw him out, did they? No, they all believed. They all saw. And what happened? God provided exactly what they needed to go on. Now, I can't tell you what St. Paul is going to look like in a year or three or 15. I cannot. Except for that I can tell you that these stories will go on. Because they're not just stories. They're ultimate truth. They never, ever fade. Yes? Okay, so, coming back to the text, trying to get through the end of it here. Uh, da, da, da. We're going to skip ahead to the next woe, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So we've had the investment culture, the party culture. Now we have sort of, I don't know, uh, the liar culture, the salesman culture. The, uh, what You pay for this, they give you that culture. Right? Uh, I'm trying to get more of that song. It's such a good song. Kids, you know what I'm talking about? No. Ah, too bad. Um, now I really want it. Hmm. You pay for this to get nobody, nobody, 1970s rock. I'm really going to stop the sermon. Do we get this? Oh my goodness. It is, uh, hey, hey, there it is. Hey, hey, my, my. Rock and roll can never die. Yeah, Neil Young. There we go. Thank you. It was worth it, right? No, no, it wasn't worth it at all. <laughs> um, let it, you're like, look at verse 19. Let it be quick. Speed up, Pastor. Um, what are those who tell lies? What are those who tell lies? And then verse 19, let him be quick. What they're saying is God's not watching. So if God really is going to punish us for taking prayer to schools and aborting babies, well, why doesn't he do it? Or the, re the way it really has gone you know, in the last 30 years is something like, well, if God is real, why doesn't he show himself? You just believe in a flying spaghetti monster who doesn't really show himself. Why doesn't he show himself? And um, God says repeatedly, because uh, I let you have a chance before I destroy you. But if you really want to fill that sin up, so, so you will. So woe to you who draw these cords of iniquity around your own neck and don't realize the day is coming. Verse 20, fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is where 
Luther just kind of makes hay out of this big time. That what Christianity is, is a turning upside down of good and evil. That without Christianity, even the good you think you're doing generally has got evil going on as it's reasoning in your heart. You don't even know it. But that Christianity shows you that people are saying, do this, it's good. You're like, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing I could do. And instead, the things that people say, never do that, you're like, that's what I should do. You know, repent, admit you're wrong, read the Bible, you know, those kinds of things. Stay married, you know, uh, don't have sex till marriage, right? I mean, wow, never do that. It won't work. Well, the yeah. Bible turns it upside down and says, you just called good evil. So why don't you call good good, St. Paul Lutheran Church? That's the hope here, right? Um, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. There's another woe that follows in the text, but we won't pick that up. Um, I want to uh, repeat there at the end how much the twisted lies of our time now, please hear me, are stronger because of the power of social media and video production. I do not believe that it is a sin to use these tools. However, I believe that if you're not a Christian, it's probably a sin to use these tools. Because if you're not a Christian, everything you do is a sin. And everything you do is worship. And so you're actually worshiping these tools most of the time. And Christians, if you take a step back and look at everybody and realize they're not Christians and they're worshiping it, you might not want to do it the same way they do it anymore. That's my suggestion. You might realize there's a, there's a God out there that we're all kind of borrowing, and it's, it's just a tool. It's just some computer stuff. And yet for everyone else, it's a God right now. And a bona fide Old Testament God that they, they worship and adore and listen to at all costs. And that's how we've been hoodwinked. That is how we've been hoodwinked. A nation of thinking people made unthinking. A nation of people who cared about Christianity and reading the Bible, putting the Bible to the side and talking about fantasy and goofiness and trying to bring that to pass by making man and woman disappear from the face of the earth in the name of goodness. What a time to live, yeah? On your way out the door here, some notes. I want you to write down some verses, all right? You're going to write them all down. You don't have to look at all of them, but I want you to write them all down. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I'm going to talk about them in a moment, but just right now. Chapter 1, 18 through 20. Chapter 6, 1 through 13. Chapter 9, 3 through 7. Chapter 11, 1 through 10. Don't write chapter every time, right? Just write the number. Chapter 26, 1 through 15. Chapter 43, 1 through 3. Chapter 53, 1 through 12. Chapter 65, 17 through 25. What I want is I tell you a little bit about each of those on the way out is for you to highlight one or two again and go look them up this week. Just go make them part of your diet. And when you do that, do it more than once. Do more than once. Do it three times, five times, seven times, right? Do it every day. So uh, the first one, 1, 18 through 20, it's just an opening vision. It's succinct. It's full of beauty and terror all at once in two verses. It's a great one to just kind of come back to. Um, chapter 6, 1 through 13, we looked at that earlier. That's his call, you know, where he sees the angels. Chapter 9, 3 through 7, this is as he's confronting Ahaz, and giving him a promise that Ahaz doesn't want. And he says this. He says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. It's a beautiful Christmas Advent text. That's 9, 3 to 7. And verses 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. It's about the rod of Jesse and the shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse. Also an Advent text we hear about Christ. 
Chapter 26, I really want to encourage you to check this one out. This is a mini end of the world. It really is chapter 25, 26, 27, but just chapter 26, verse 1 through 15, a mini end of the world, a preview of the goodness of the end of the world. It's beautiful. Um, chapter 40, jumping way ahead. You'll remember this one from Advent 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that her warfare is over. That's chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. Chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. And unfortunately, this one I don't yet have memorized, but I'm going to read it to you because it is brief. Just three verses here. It's uh, potently positive. But now thus says Jesus Christ, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am Jesus Christ, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Again, that's Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. Between chapter 43 and chapter 60, there's a section that's called the Servant Songs. And they're about the man of sorrows or the suffering servant. There's a lot I could say here. I just want to introduce you the idea, the Servant Songs. And the best first one to go to is Isaiah 53, 1 to 12. For the man of sorrows. It's going to be Good Friday kind of stuff. Yeah. And then finally, chapter 65, 17 through 25. This is all about the new heavens and the new earth. And I'll just read you the last verse, verse 25, because, I mean, how can you talk about Isaiah and not hear it read that the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, for they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says Jesus Christ. That's, again, 65, 25. Start at verse 17 and uh, put one, two, or a couple of those in your week. Get it a couple times again. Learn it. Know it. Have it be yours. And remember then that this is what it means to be a tree planted by streams of water. You're going to be solid in this knowledge. In exile, in this age, in the famine that we see, in the storm of your life, you are not going to be sent into despair and loneliness. But these words instead will call you closer and closer into the true fellowship of Jesus Christ, which again is the knowledge that this body and this blood and these words and this spirit is sufficient to outlast even the darkest days of this present age. In the name of Jesus, amen.